Welcome to Lessons from the Helpful Dead, where you'll learn the world is not what it seems, and you are much more than you think you are. Here you will learn about positive and reassuring messages from supposedly dead people whose main purpose is to help us. Find out what happens after we die, why we're here, how we got here, where we're going, and discover that you are really a powerful eternal spirit. I'm Dan McEnany. We've been discussing the uh, three stages that we humans will be experiencing over the next 60 years or so in our advancement toward uh, what will be a much uh, greater sense of our own capabilities. Most recently, we've been talking about the third stage, which is that stage where we realize that we create what we experience. And uh, in the last session, I'd gotten to the point where we first have to address the role of ideas when we discuss that concept. As discussed in a number of previous sessions, ideas are, of course, real. They are, in fact, more real than the material world. So it's not accurate to say that the universe is just an idea that we have constructed. Drop the word just. No physical thing would exist without first being in pure thought form. Consciousness comes first and manifests, its, it manifests itself in the physical world. And that's true from the tiniest speck of dirt to the most imposing mountain range. Everything has consciousness, which came before the material manifestation of it on this earth. So it's in that perspective that some sources suggest God is an idea, a thought that holds an idea shape of itself as human, but also as everything else that exists. Now, some of those idea shapes coalesce into physical matter, and some don't. It's easy to understand that almost all of the things that we see and interact with every day started with an idea. And something that we all agree is real can't come from something that isn't, right? So sky, skyscrapers and airplanes and automobiles, computers, homes, roads, bridges, all of them started with someone's idea or a refinement of another's idea. If there had not first been an idea about these things, they just simply would not have come into existence. Now, as previously noted, the single most powerful example of the reality and power of ideas is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, in my book, Christ Was Not Crucified, Thank God, I made the case that the idea of Christ being crucified for our sins, which is uh, which implies a powerful, vengeful God who demanded punishment for our transgression, <clears throat> that uh, had far more power and influence over people in subse subsequent, subsequent centuries than what really happened. Okay? What really happened, according to Seth, and it makes sense to me, is that Christ's message was, be like me, not worship me. He had no intention of reinforcing the image of a reward-punishment God. And it was a delusional man, not Christ, who was actually crucified. Now, the apostles couldn't understand that Christ's message was not for their material world, but for a much larger one. And so Christ simply willed himself out of his body. 
This account of what actually happened on our physical planet, which I choose to believe is correct, does not in any way lessen the reality, the power, and the influence of the idea of the crucifixion held by millions of Christians in subsequent centuries. That idea has been the source of countless acts of benevolence and charity in many parts of the world with great universities established in its name, teaching it as actual fact, physical fact. So we have to conclude that an idea can be powerful. And if it is powerful, it must be real. Bottom line, something does not have to be physical to be real. So when we reach that point where we're ready to unleash the full power of our ability to manifest, understanding that we create what we experience, we'll have to start with ideas. So let's review Seth's explanation of how matter is formed, because that's the process that we'll be using to manifest matter. Now, uh, <clears throat> it was described uh, briefly in chapter 7 of my book that we are all tourists, and I'll repeat that explanation here. So how precisely does consciousness form physical matter? It has to do with electromagnetic energy units, which uh, EEUs for short, and these units are formed spontaneously from the electromagnetic reality of thought-based feelings emitted from each consciousness, also known as emanations from consciousness. The intensity of the feelings determines the characteristics of the units themselves. As certain ranges uh, are reached, and the ranges of intensity, right? As certain ranges of intensity are reached, they're propelled into physical actualization. We interp interpret uh, some of them as events, dream events, hallucinations, or movement through time. In some dreams and out-of-body experiences, our own consciousness moves faster than light, so we're able to perceive them as mass or matter. These are, quote, incipient forms of reality. Now, in mechanical terms, faster-than-light particles slow down on the outside perimeter of the E. EEU, that's the electromagnetic energy unit, right? The faster-than-light particles slow down on the outside perimeter, and they imprison the faster-moving particles at the center, allowing them to move only in a confined area. Now, the behavior of such units forms the particular camouflage of any given system, and that includes our human time-space illusion of forms and matter. Now, while the camouflage structure gives the impression of closed systems, Seth explained no system is closed. Energy flows freely from one to the other. It's our tight, limited focus, which is, of course, necessary for us to uh, function here. Right? It's that tight, limited focus that makes these EEUs invisible so that we can't perceive them. We perceive only the results of what they do. The physical brain that we all have is the mechanism by which thought or emotion is automatically formed into EEUs of the proper range for us to use. And these are the psychic building blocks of matter. Now in chapter 19 of the Seth material, which was an earlier book by Jane Roberts, Seth discussed inner vibrational touch, which enables the observer to feel the experience of being anything he chooses within his field of notice. So whether it's people, trees, insects, blades of grass, or whatever. 
Uh, this is similar to Bob Monroe's experience when he traveled in time with his guides uh, to one probable version of the year 3000 in our time. So a rudimentary knowledge of EEUs and how they operate gives us some glimpse of how this might be achieved from a mechanical perspective. Our inner self forms the body in this manner. It transforms thoughts and emotions into physical counterparts. Our inner selves, individually and en masse, they send out psychic energy, forming tentacles that coalesce into form. The electromagnetic reality of each thought and emotion is unique. So we each act as transformers. We're unconsciously transforming highly sophisticated EEUs into physical objects. We exist in the midst of pseudo-matter. Each thought or emotion exists as an EEU not yet perceived by our scientists. So again, the intensity of the thought or emotion determines not only the strength, but the permanence of the physical object into which it will be materialized. We humans are made of the same ingredients as a chair, a carrot, a stone, a bird, a pillow. All our consciousness is joined together in a giant cooperative effort to make the forms we perceive. Right? Permanence of any form is an illusion since consciousness must be in a state of constant change. The EEUs work in conjunction with coordinate points, which are like invisible power plants on a grid that are activated when any emotional thought or feeling of sufficient intensity comes into contact with them, further intensifying whatever activates them, regardless of whether it's positive or negative. So in this manner, the subjective experience of any of us is automatically expressed as EEUs, which would usually be material form in our camouflage reality, or it would be an event. Now, the thoughts and emotions and the corresponding mental images are therefore blueprints for what will materialize. As noted, the greater the intensity, the greater the likelihood of the materialization. Now, so with that brief description of how matter is formed, it should be clear that once we've completed the first and second stages of our development in the next 60 years or so, we will have sharpened our ability to think precisely with intensity to the point where we'll have the power to develop the third capability on a broad basis. In the succeeding 20 to 25 years, it might become commonplace. Now, when I discussed the 2075 movement in a previous session, I asked you to think about what you might manifest uh, and at a time like this when you had this ability to create what you experience. I asked you to at least think about it. I'll repeat some of it here because it's relevant. So the options are as numerous as there are humans. Whatever you're interested in, whatever you'd like to see, feel, or experience, whatever you have enthusiasm for, you can manifest it, whether it's great sporting events, concerts, magic shows, operas, libraries, auto races, boat races, uh, biking trips, sailing, medical breakthroughs, prosperous, safe societies, advanced uh, uh, sciences and chemistry and physics and electronics. You name it, if the mind can conceive it, you'll be able to create it. Uh, in the 2075 movement, uh, I speculated what 
life might be like when we develop this ability. Um, and one of the exciting things is the possibility of playing new roles that we help to create. So even now, as millions of us enjoy uh, theater or shows where only selected, talented people get to play roles that have been created by someone's imagination as they wrote a book or a screenplay, in those new circumstances of 2075, we could all be the stars of our own productions. We bring to life characters that we create in our imaginations. So what kind of new creative powers will be unleashed in these circumstances? I ask the question, will, will we all be Academy Award winners? Now, given what Bob Monroe uh, witnessed uh, and, uh, when he traveled to the year 3000, and uh, given what Betty White, Raymond Lodge, and Frederick Myers told us after they died, a lot of us enjoy creating the environment of our choosing, where we're happy and experiencing whatever we wish in terms of objects and events. Okay? So that's uh, the third stage after death, what Monroe called the belief system territories. And uh, he mentioned that uh, he was told some people spend centuries of our time there mistakenly thinking it's the heaven they believed in while on earth. All right, so if we compare uh, the belief system territories to what we might do, in uh, 20, 2075 and afterward, when we've developed these abilities, uh, we, uh, we, we have to think about whether or not uh, it will be like the belief system territories. I, I'm, I don't think so, because we'll still be living in an obstructed universe where I, ideas and creative abilities will bump into others' uh, uh, ideas and actions and have conflicts with them. But to the extent that uh, what we create does not conflict with others. It's possible we'd be living our daily lives in ways that have similarities to what we do now, eating the food we like in a house we like and so forth, or living in nature, whether it's the mountains or the seashore. Uh, question, does that mean everyone will have a job they like? Maybe, but will they even need jobs? Will we learn to get our sustenance from the energy that surrounds the earth as Bob Monroe did when he traveled uh, to a probable version of our Earth in the year 3000. So since we won't be identifying so closely with the physical body that we inhabit, will we be spending a lot more time out of body creating new realities? Or will life challenges center primarily around making the Earth as good as it can possibly be? I don't know. Think about it. Once we know we're creating illusions, will it spoil the emotional experiences that we have now? Can we still get emotional knowing events are something we control and can change anytime we like? So even now, some people create their own environments online um, with the personalities that are extensions of themselves, uh, interacting in imaginary cities and creating imaginary goods, right? People currently use technology to experience such illusions. But what if we create the illusions just by exercising the powers of our mind? Will the uh, activity of illusion creating, will that lose its appeal because no longer leads to emotions? And what about negative or limiting realities, right? As things stand now, many people have endured physical, mental, and emotional suffering, but they've become stronger for it. They might also have had strong emotional experiences of despair, hope, victory, joy, then sadness. In a sense, the existence of our negative illusions has made the earth experience richer and more rewarding for some, contributing to their soul growth. 
But will that still be possible or even desirable? Will we still need to, or even, we certainly wouldn't want to, but will we need to endure sickness, poverty, or hunger to achieve a rewarding life <clears throat> full of abundance and good health? I don't think so. I don't think we need to go through that. Or will we see no need for such experiences right, and such emotions? So, uh, as you know, one of Seth's best lines, in my opinion, was that suffering is only good for the soul if it teaches us how to stop suffering. So, in my opinion, I don't think we'll be experiencing suffering. Okay? And, uh, you know, I've talked about the experience of the excitement of a sporting event. That, that might lose its appeal. Um, and <clears throat> there's another concept to think about. Will we want to create realities that interact with those of others in a competitive way? Would we want to do that at all? Or would we rather have realities where we interact in a cooperative way or in a random way or in the way that provides us the most excitement and pleasure? As you think about all the possibilities, even with the restrictions of being still in the body, it's no wonder Seth said there's no way to comprehend some of the realities out there in the spirit world. And none of the words that we understand could come close to describing what they're like. Still, a number of us, after 2075, a number of us uh, with these abilities would be experiencing some kind of reality like this, where to some extent we create what we experience. And uh, so it would seem worthwhile to speculate about what life would be like. Uh, one thing's for sure, if millions of us know that we're eternal, power, powerful spirits, and that a particular life that we're living now is just one of many ways that we continually grow in awareness, we'll certainly have a different perspective on what we're doing here. The question to be asked, will our single life here have the importance that we currently assign to it? Or will we see an entire life as just one of millions of experiences we choose to have in different realities? I'll let you think about that yourself and see what kind of an answer you come up with. I also asked <coughs> ask you to think about what uh, might disappear and what might remain in such a reality. And I won't go over it now, but we talked about what industries will still exist. Uh, the entertainment industry, computers, the internet, the food industry, the medical industry. Um, what objects will, will appear or not appear. And um, what about structures and events? Which ones will we choose to have or not have? And what about government and organized religions? Will they still be necessary? So I, I discussed those in the past in detail. I won't go into them now. But one question I will talk about now is how would we relate to what we now call the dead? Right? So assuming that all of this would come about in the probability that you experience, an interesting question arises, and it has to do with how those living inside a physical body will relate to those not living in one, but living someplace else, those spirits we currently call the dead. So as noted, uh, our future capabilities are not so different from those of the inhabitants of the belief system territories. And again, that after-death after stage where we create whatever we want, which a lot of people think is heaven, and they happily stay there for a, a long period of our time. So doesn't it seem logical that this similarity of capabilities would encourage frequent and meaningful communication 
between the inhabitants of both realities? And would that not lead to some close relationships with added aspects that make them enjoyable? Many of the sources that have been cited in, in the previous sessions, they make the point that we can help those in the after-death planes just as they can help us. So that, that seems reasonable to me. Uh, we do not become someone else when we die. If a close friend who's been a source of emotional support, if they die, their spirit is no longer in the physical body, but the spirit's still the same. Many people have reported feeling the supportive spirit of a deceased loved one, similar to what Stuart Edward White felt when Betty White died. Now, when my wife Patty and I lived in Wilmington, North Carolina, we swam at a local pool. And one day, Patty talked at length with a 60-something woman that we saw there frequently. And she told Patty that her husband, who ran the family business, died some years back, leaving her with no knowledge of how to run the business. And she shared that she told his spirit in no uncertain terms he could not leave her alone and unprepared, and he'd have to take over and teach her how to run the business. <laughs> well, he did so, she said, for about two years, until she was well-equipped to manage the business. He then communicated to her that she was prepared and he had to leave to pursue his own development in the afterlife. Now, she did not consider this communication with him as strange or unusual, she talked about it in the same way that uh, she was complaining about her grandchildren had lied to her about needing uh, money for a car. Right. So when we have advanced through the three stages of development, we can expect our communications and relationships with the dead are going to be more frequent and informative, contributing to our growth and likely to theirs. Right. But this leads to another question. Will we decide to stop participating in the life-death cycle? The reasons for it will no longer be compelling. There won't be that much difference between the environments of the living and the dead. There might be good reason to continue participating in the life-death cycle, but it's easier to think of reasons why we'll end participation. I'm not talking about suicide here. You should never commit suicide, as discussed in previous sessions. So anyway, it's impossible to figure out a timeline for what might happen when. There are many probabilities. What happens in one probability might not happen in another. Even when probable realities are close, uh, the timing of major changes could uh, differ dramatically. So will we become a human race that largely ignores the life-death cycle by, let's say, 2100? I doubt it. But the probable future visited by Bob Monroe in the year 3000 suggests it certainly will be the way things are at that time. Now, that said, there are 900 years between 2100 and 3000, and a lot can happen in 900 Earth years. What is important is that changes will occur. If it doesn't happen by 2075 or 2100 or 2200, the point is at some point it will occur, and at that point we'll enjoy a wonderful world that's difficult to even imagine right now. So whatever the timing... Uh, I wish for you that uh, you enjoy the trip, whether you're in your current physical body, another physical body, or no physical body at all. And with that, I'll conclude the discussion of the developments that will hopefully uplift humanity sometime in the next 60 years or so. Now, in the next session, I'm going to change the format a bit, and uh, what I'm going to do 
is I will read some excerpts from uh, things that Seth told to uh, Jane and Rob over the 20 years that he dictated things to him. So I'll read some very interesting things that he said, and then I'll reflect on it, and I'll ask you to do the same. Okay, uh, again, this is Dan McEnany bringing you lessons from the helpful dead.